for me, I, I felt that the housing thing was really important because yeah. when I've been out knocking on doors, and I've been knocking on doors since 1982, you know, people would often say, yeah, the housing never goes to people like us, never goes to people around here. With council housing, for instance, I've made it policy that 50% of the new homes we build have to go to people who already live in that community. Great, yeah. So that people can see, not only are we building housing, but people like them are benefiting from, maybe them are benefiting from them. I'm Neil Maggs, and this is Bristol Unpacked, speaking to fascinating Bristolians on topics where others may fear to tread. Brought to you by the city's community-owned media, The Bristol Cable. episode of Bristol Unpacked we talk housing in conversation with councillor Paul Smith head of housing for Bristol City Council who's just announced he's about to leave we talk council housing high rents and the current state of play in the city hello Paul Smith how you doing yeah, I'm good, thanks. And you? You've just literally announced you're resigning or you're stepping down from your position of head of housing and as a councillor, is that right? That's right, yeah. A job came up which I felt I couldn't pass the chance on, which is the chief exec of one of the local housing associations, ELIM. So I'm going to be taking over that role in October. And it's not one that you can do alongside an involvement in politics. And, and this is kind of your second time of standing down in politics, isn't it? Because you, I think, were you the youngest councillor in Bristol? I was at one point. I think my record's been beaten several times since. I, in 1988, I was first elected to the council and I was 24 then. And then I, I retired when I was 35 um, and became the youngest ever alderman. Yeah, what is an alderman, for those that don't know? It, it's an, an honorary title given to retired councillors. It's almost like the dangerous sports game because one of them dies every month. Okay. Um, what do you do when you're an alderman? What kind of things do you do? You can represent the council on outside bodies and yeah. you do get a seat in the council chamber. You're not allowed to vote or speak, but you can go and sit there and enjoy it close up. Will you be doing that? Very unlikely. <laughs> okay. Um, I've got an amazing quote from you here from 2010. It says, I have a hatred of poverty and discrimination. I owe my political conscience originally to Catholicism. My understanding of socialism I learned from my education, in brackets, Hartcliffe School, was full of radicals, if you knew what to look for, and my anger and anarchism from punk rock. Crikey, I, it's a great quote. I can't It's a great quote, it. isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> you did say that, though, did you? Yeah, I, I probably 2010, of course, when I stood for Parliament unsuccessfully. So um, it, yeah. it probably comes from around that period. It's interesting. So you grew up in Hartcliffe. Um, so you would have experienced firsthand, let's tackle the first thing, poverty and discrimination. Yeah, yeah. although, you know, sometimes we've said, what was it like growing up in Hartcliffe? Well, it was normal. That's yeah. that, <laughs> We were just there. They didn't, yeah. you know, didn't necessarily think much of it until you started meeting people from other areas. Sure. So the first time I started really meeting people from other areas who I thought were wealthy, in fact, actually weren't that wealthy at all, was people from Whitchurch because Hartcliffe School 
at that time was a mixture of Hartcliffe kids and Whitchurch kids. And your political conscience to Catholicism. So I didn't know that. So you, did you go to Catholic school? I'm adopted. I was adopted from the Catholic Adoption Agency. And my oh, parents okay. agreed to bring me up as Catholic until I was 18. So I had to go to church every every Sunday until I was 18. Um, and the sort of priests you got in Hartcliffe and Noel West, which was the churches I went to, were, were quite radical. Um, so you picked up a lot of that sort of... Uh, liberation theology R- radical in what sense well in, in, in politically you know in, yeah. in, in terms of you know concern about issues of of poverty in, in particular and you know we m- my dad was in and out of work quite a lot when i was a kid and the catholic church used to bring us food parcels long before food banks existed um so had, had a very strong uh, af- affinity with that of course do you still follow? I mean, do you still consider yourself a believer or, or not? No, I consider myself an atheist. And probably since the age of 11, that was the case. But I still had to go to church because so that's more of a deal my parents had done. I mean, I, I, I'm a bit of a housing geek. I got my first job in housing in, in 1989. I yeah. first got involved in homelessness issues in 1980. I was a member of the South Bristol Youth Council. I got the sort of bit of the housing bug, really, and I've I've worked in it for most of the last thirty uh, odd years. I'm a bit of a geek. Even people in the housing sector probably think that I'm a bit of a geek as well. I mean, you've got a background in astrophysics, haven't you, in astronomy? You, you apply a logic, which I I watch your interactions on social media, which I find it quite interesting because you don't seem to get overly emotional. Look, some politicians get emotional under criticism, but you you seem to keep level headed, and yet socialism and politics is a, an emotional rousing thing, isn't it? It's a heart centred thing around trying to change communities and change lives. Yeah, well, you know, we're all a bundle of contradictions. I, I guess I'm no less that than other people. But I do try and be as objective as I can and, and look for where is the evidence. As I think most people would think that politicians decide what they believe and then look for the evidence to fit their, their beliefs. And I think we're all probably a bit guilty of that. But I, I do believe in, you know, following real evidence and I often get annoyed when people say even people I agree with when they say you know something's been proved when it hasn't deep within my heart there is a a logical scientist trying to get out you know my my experience through life has been generally people who are angry and angry with politicians it's usually because nobody's ever listened to them and so if if somebody asks me a question I try and play it with a straight bat but I feel if, if at least if I try to engage with people and answer them, that they might accept that, you know, we're not all complete bastards just because mm. we're politicians. And that, you know, we are trying to do what we think is best, even if they don't agree with it. And I think most people respond to that actually reasonably well. There are some people that you can never satisfy. And I've blocked a few people would you say that you were one of the well i suppose i can answer this from from a journalist perspective you're probably one of the more popular politicians in the city i I would say from from the media perspective 
I try to have a good relationship with the media. And I mean, in some respects, you know, having been involved in politics for, you know, well over 30 years, you understand what the role of the media is. The role of the media isn't to repeat your um, answers or your position, but it is, it is to challenge. And that's really important in a democracy. So I've tried to be as available as as possible. Let's talk about the big talking point. You've been on the news, BBC Breakfast, and I've done a bit of media stuff on this. The the billboard, the mayor's pledge of eight hundred affordable units, you know, which is more likely to be four to five hundred maximum. What went wrong, and is it your fault or the mayor's fault? Um, I mean, it's the accumulation of a large number of things, and it it will happen. It's just going to happen later. You know, we're going to we're going to miss that target by a year, but we're not going to miss it completely in the sense that we will get to that annual rate, which is what we were trying to get to. But we will get to it a year later. And in fact, you know, once we've got to it, it'll probably be a bit higher than eight hundred a year for a few years because of the sort of backlog that, that's been built up. So COVID's had an impact, but it would be wrong to say it was all down to COVID. That an excuse that's being banded about a bit then? Because that's obviously uh, been the, the rebuttal, no, wasn't it? It, from... it, it? it genuinely has had an impact, but it would be wrong to say it's the only thing. Sure. And, you know, it, if I take Ashton Rise, which is the first council estate that we've built for 30 years, the construction didn't stop on site. But COVID has put it six months behind schedule because of the social distancing on site. It's just meant it's taken a lot longer to do stuff there. But people are moving in now. We weren't just prepared to accept any old crap to get to the target. You know, an example I give is Bedminster Green. We were expecting to have a thousand homes there by now, of, of which 300 would be affordable. But we had this situation where the land ownership kept flipping so you'd be talking to one developer about what you wanted on the site and then suddenly somebody else owned the land and people were making their money out of selling the sites on rather than actually building any houses. And the first few schemes that have come forward have not been acceptable in terms of their quality. So they haven't been agreed through planning. Well, all those things have delayed it, but they've delayed it for the right reasons. You know, if we build at home, it's likely to be there for 100 years. So... You know, just just to hit a target, to get something that's going to be like dreadful for 100 years, it just isn't good enough. We have had some challenge. So if we take Hengrove Park as an example, as soon as we said we were wanting to take that forward, it got called in on the council. We were sort of battled every step of the way on trying to get something there. We spent a lot more time on consultation because we knew that there were concerns and it didn't get through planning the first time. A revised scheme got through planning the second time. And then one of the councillors referred it to the Secretary of State. And all of those things, you know, caused a huge delay. Then there's things about us as a council that have slowed things down. So, for instance, you know, one of our big manifesto issues, and, and interestingly, it was in the manifesto of all of the parties, was setting up a housing company, which is now called Gorham Homes. It it got caught massively in the council systems, legal and finance systems of of due diligence and checking and checking and over and over again, partly because there was an awareness that the that the energy company wasn't living up to uh, its promises. And there was like, you know, we don't want another energy company. Yeah, we sure. Yeah. Really make sure that it, it works. And that's that 
delayed the setting up of Gorham by about 18 months. We're demolishing the old building in Lochlees where they're building their first development and they'll start building later this year. But they should have been finishing quite a lot of it by now. So th- there's a whole load of reasons about badgers, slow worms, not weed, whole, whole range yeah. of things, bats. I think the other thing is, is I have actually been disappointed by the housing associations, not by all of them. Some of them have been brilliant. Yeah. But they came to us in 2015 and to the other candidates for mayor and said, we want you to commit to us building 600 homes a year. And so far, they haven't got past 300. It it looks like a a great big long list of excuses. But I think, I guess what I'd learn from this is everything takes longer than you you do think and you would like. You don't regret, or or you you and the mayor don't necessarily regret the target that you set. It wasn't overambitious or unrealistic. The thing is, is if you don't set the target and you don't aim for it, then you'll end up with something, you, you know, we might be talking about, well, why are you building 250 instead of 500 this year? So I think you absolutely have to set ambitious targets. And I, I'm still pushing the officers about ways in which we can increase that number over the 500 this year. And there's a report that I've approved going to Cabinet in October, which will give the, the council uh, housing department an extra £20 million to spend on buying up properties. Now, some of those are already counted in that 500 because we're buying up houses that were going to be taken by housing associations, which now they're not going to take. But it's also us buying more from new developments than was originally agreed in terms of the affordable. Everyone's comparing it to the target that you set. But how does it compare to under the previous mayor, George Ferguson's reign and, and, you know, prior to then? under the council you know how many more how many more houses or less houses have have you kind of overseen under george the affordable was averaging about 150 a year this year we get to 500 which is three times as much and when next year we get to 800 it will be five six times as much so frustrating then that that's not the thing that's been pushed out in the media what has been pushed out is the failure to hit the target or, or or do you just accept that that you know, you're going to be held to account because you've put that out there as, a, as an I think, ambition I, on the I billboard. I think it's absolutely fine for us to be held to account and for us to be able to explain uh, the reason why meeting that target has been delayed. The The problem is, you know, from my perspective, some of the ways it's been reported in the media is if that like 2020 is like the end of time. And, yeah. and what we were talking about was getting to a rate of building a number of affordable homes a year. We will get to that rate. We'll get to it late rather than you're only halfway there. You know, it would be great to be looking at what the media say when we do get to 800 and 1,000 affordable uh, homes a year. And you're confident that will happen? Yeah, I'm absolutely confident that will happen, partly because the council's building more itself. Will that be put on a new billboard then? That's the question, isn't it? As you said, I'm (laughs) I'm bowing out of politics and billboards out of my area. It, it, It may well be. But, I, you know, yeah. if you drive around Bristol, you can see the housing that's being built. I've certainly noticed it. Mm-hmm. There does definitely seem to be more houses being built. I think this is why uh, you guys have come under so much criticism for it in the last few days, because I guess under Marvin's tenureship, housing was the big thing. Housing was that, you know, that's one of the sort of success stories. So mm-hmm. so for, for, for that to be seen as a failure is is something that's going to be jumped on, I guess, isn't it? 
Yeah, absolutely. And I, I don't blame anybody for, for picking up on it. And it was me that set for this year the target of 500 when we were looking at the impact of, of COVID and other things. So happy to take, well, not happy, but, you know, obviously prepared to take responsibility for that delay in hitting the target. But I do feel incredibly optimistic about where it's going to go. And I think what's often forgotten is what we inherited was not what we expected. The culture of the council was was terrible. I, I remember reading the what was the housing strategy, which had been agreed only a few months before we were elected, and basically it was it was about twenty four pages long, I think, and the first sixteen pages were how terrible everything was, and loads of stats about how awful you know homelessness was and all the rest of it, and then eight pages of excuses why we couldn't do anything. And, you know, that that the organisation had almost surrendered and we had to turn that around. You know, I stopped the council selling off its housing land. I stopped it auctioning off empty council houses, which it was doing at the time. We've half the number of empty council houses because nobody seemed to think that it was particularly a, a, a problem. And there's been a big job when we came in, firstly, to change the culture of the organisation to one that is trying to do things rather than to give reasons why it can't do anything. And secondly, to find that there was an enormous financial black hole. We were elected in May. By July, we had you know £26 million pounds, uh, black hole. How long can that be used as a reason not to achieve some targets there? Because obviously it's not just in housing, it's in, in a number of areas. Mm. You touched upon, you know, Bristol Energy, well, for think- example, that often it is the sense of, you know, we inherited this, the legacy we had, that, that mm. at some point that's going to run out, that, that kind of reason or, or excuse, however you see it, is going to run out of time shortly. At what point do you go, right, now we fully take responsibility, we are here, we are in power, we are the kind of local council, this is on us now? Because I think some people listening might feel that whilst, you know, that there's obviously truth to what you say, that 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 only has credibility up to a certain point yeah absolutely and i you know i i I think that and obviously i'm biased i think we've done a tremendous job in turning that round and and changing it but it also creates i mean if i think about the setting up of gorham homes the sort of fiscal conservatism within the council something that sort of exists there still to a certain extent and it served us in some ways it served us very well in that we haven't had to make the high level of cuts that some other cities have made. But it also has meant that it's been much more of a struggle to get money out of the out of the beast, if you like, to mm. spend on things. And and housing is somewhere where we have invested. We've now got a pipeline of council housing of, of over twelve hundred homes in the council housing department. Gorham's got four hundred that it's already got concrete position on and another nine hundred it's working on in terms of sites. So I'm I'm very happy to own that change. What I would say is I guess we didn't realise ha- how difficult it was going to be to turn uh, the tank around. One of the interesting things is I worked for a housing association not long before I came on to the council that had actually taken a decision not to work in Bristol because it was just too difficult too bureaucratic, too slow, too commanding control. And and so they, they decided not, not to work in the city. 
isn't it? That's something that the Mayor Marvin Reese thanked you and said uh, for bringing credibility mm-hmm. to this organisation in the eyes of developers. I, I, I was I was very pleased to hear Marvin's um, praise for me. I, I I mean, we also took a very hard line with developers within the city. Well, yeah, that's what I was going to kind of follow that with, really, and say, is the interpretation of that that you've you've cozied up to, to big corporate developers, Paul? Um, well, I, I don't think that's the case. What we what we said to developers is, if you don't want to build the affordable housing, don't come to Bristol. But if you do want to build the affordable housing, we'll work with you to actually achieve that. So it was very much tough love, and also, as I said, we we took. 80 hectares, which 80 football pitches worth or rugby pitches, if you're that way inclined, of land off the housing market to develop ourselves. And one of the problems was that Gorham Homes, which was then our vehicle to do that, took much longer than it should have to set up. And that's on us, really. I I do find sometimes, you know, getting things through the council's systems and procedures tortuous. Yeah. I often don't understand why things take as long as they do. Sorry to interrupt. Um, it's me, it's Neil. You know that anyway because you know by my voice. This is an advert for the Bristol Cable. Please join us and 2,000 others. It would be great. You don't have to, but it would be good if you do because you know the media's all over the shop at the moment, isn't it? So it'd be good if you could. Yeah, I mean, I think you hit on it at the start, didn't you? There's often been, I mean, I know this from, from working in there, has often been a kind of, not a can-do culture, kind of, oh, we're not, we're not sure we can do that, a risk aversion, you know, let's not over-promise. So I think maybe by making bold statements, putting your kind of marker out and saying we are going to do X and Y, it's probably quite, that was quite a new way of working, I think, for a lot of council officers. Most council officers, but, you know, by far the majority of council officers just want to do a good job. What we have to do, and I think one of the things that Marvin's been trying really hard to do, is make sure that the organisation doesn't stop the people doing the right thing um, yeah. and, and doing the job well. You know, that is about culture. If the culture of the organisation is, if you stick your head above the parapet and do something a bit a bit radical or a bit different, if it goes wrong, you're on the chopping board. The easiest thing to do is nothing. Bristol has always had a reputation of, you know, slightly underachieving, I would say, in, certainly in terms of getting things built. Yeah. Um, There's a really interesting report in the 1990s, which I remember from when I was on the council before, which compared education in bristol with education in birmingham yeah because bristol's educational achievement was lower socioeconomically than it should have been compared to birmingham and the conclusion of that report was that bristol was complacent because it always done well enough it never had the sort of threat to it in the same way that say northern cities had or midland cities had it you know with the whole of their industry collapsing yeah and this sense that you know we firstly we've got to really pull together to survive and secondly that you know we really have to push for what we want in a sense bristol's had it too easy and that's made it complacent and also made it a bit slow is that because a lot of you know you're obviously an exception to this but an awful lot of leaders traditionally over the years in all sectors in the city come from the normally the nicer parts i think it's only relatively recently that there's been a slight shift in the type of people that you see in leadership positions 
in my experience, I, I've, I've rarely seen anybody from where I'm from. As you, you have got people, you know, Marvin is from working class area. You are people like Craig Cheney, people like Ashard. They're not from the what I grew up with, the usual political establishment. It, it, there is a different feel and a different mm. tone to that. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because when I first came on the council, it was run by lots of working class trade unionists. Mm-hmm. And so the council has tended to have sort of a working class leadership back in 88. There was a real sense that there was the working class Labour run council fighting what they used to call them on the hill. Yeah. And them on the hill could mean the university, it could mean the society of merchant venturers. But it was yeah. that sense that, you know, it was us against business because of course trade unionists had that perspective and also it was bristol against everywhere around it so bristol was labor everywhere around bristol was conservative and so there was a sort of fortress mentality might have been quite comfortable in some respects but didn't actually achieve very much so i think you know one of the the best things marvin's done is is this one city approach and trying to bring people together around a common agenda in a way that if you, if you look at northern cities they did in the 70s and 80s because all of the industries that their economies depended upon completely collapsed some councillors feel that there's too much power given or too much influence given to unelected power they don't they i i, I think there's a real problem at the moment in in that there isn't a clear role for backbench councillors. I, I I would hate to come on the council as a backbench councillor now because I think that the amount of authority that they're able to exercise is incredibly limited. You know, it's, it's sort of restricted to things like the planning committee where they can make decisions or the safety committee. And I, I think that the system that we've got now, we we need to look at how can those backbench councillors and opposition councillors have more of a say. Again, going back to the 18th century, when I first came on to the, the council, all the decisions of the council were made in committees. So all the decisions about housing were made in the housing committee. And that meant there were votes at all of those committees, which were binding in a way that isn't the case now. There are no, apart from the budget, there are no votes at full council that are really binding. So, And is that problematic for democracy? I think it is. And I, I don't think it's a Bristol problem. I think it's a general problem with local authority governance as we move to, you know, increasingly move to a mayoral system. Do you agree with the mayoral system? Is is that politically? I think think the mayoral system needs more checks and balances within it. Otherwise, you might as well have a council of just, you know, as they do in the States in some areas, a council of just a dozen people. You know, why have 71 elected representatives on the council if all the decisions are just made by a very small number? What are the rest there for? And I think that's a question that, that we need to have addressed, not just in Bristol, but nationally. I mean, it's essentially a Conservative Party idea, isn't it? Well, it's it, it it was it was one of those things that was promoted by the Conservatives and jumped on by by Labour to a certain extent. I mean, I, I I was one of the people who campaigned in Bristol for a mayoral system. Did and you really? There okay. Are different types of mayoral systems across. I mean, the mayoral system is well established in Europe. 
in socialist countries and social democratic countries as well as Christian Democrat and right-wing countries. And of course, you've got a mayoral system in the USA and most of the world, there are mayoral systems. You know, we need to spend some time looking at those to see how they can be made to work in a way that, you know, your majority of backbench politicians don't feel like they're just window dressing. Because there have been, you know, a few decisions and things that have happened when there's been a kind of council majority in one way, but a decision has been made to go in another way of, of the, the arena being the obvious big kind of issue in the city. So it kind of almost, I guess, from their perspective, that they feel as the representatives of communities in the city that their voice is null and void. I'm sure there are many examples. I mean, there was one that we used to cite where about George Ferguson selling off land at the docks against yeah. a vote yeah. at the full council. Local government has been massively undermined, you know, over decades by governments of all colours. And they've tinkered with it, but they've not really given it uh, proper thought. But it's local government which does stuff. I mean, if you look at if you look at COVID, it was the council and councils across the country at a local level which were organising practical things getting done where the government were just spouting targets for things that they never seemed to manage to do. Sure. And, you know, we saw the death rate mount and mount and mount. And local government is the bit of government which actually delivers a huge amount of services. You know, despite COVID, you put your bin out every fortnight, your rubbish got taken away. We're yeah. happy for the NHS workers and the care workers absolutely correctly. But, you know, people who drive buses and collect our bins and all that stuff was still going on. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. And, and was incredibly important. I mean, Im- imagine if the bin collections had stopped. Yeah. You know, no, you're right. You're right. We need to, you know, and I think the whole period of COVID, I think, has is, is, is made people stop and think about what is a key worker, what is an essential service, and maybe how, what's important, and whose whose job roles are important. Because, yeah, how many of us during COVID really wanted to see a banker? Yeah. Let me just ask. Just you know, so you're not you're not stepping down because you feel jaded or tired of local politics or there's you know anything kind of happening in the landscape of bristol that you feel doesn't resonate with the, the you know the in your own wolfie they call you some people don't they in your own sort <laughs> of you know old socialist sense this new kind of slightly more modern era where as you say business and council are more aligned that doesn't feel uncomfortable for for you that isn't a reason for you going well i'm going to stay involved in bristol just in a different way And as I said, this opportunity came up. It's something that I have wanted to do for some time to operate at that chief exec level within the housing sector. I've been chief exec in a couple of other organisations. It's better money as well, better money. It it is better, you know, I'm not going to lie, it is is better money. And probably in in some respects, you know, less hassle, probably a different type of hassle. I expect I'm not going to get hammered on Twitter all the time to answer stuff. I'm not going to get people phoning me all the hours of the night and day with particular issues. And, you know, it's interesting. One of the things about lockdown is um, all the political meetings in the evenings and the weekends stopped. And you enjoyed it, yeah? Quite lovely. Yeah. (laughs) Getting your life back and and actually realising what you were giving up. I mean, there's a, a quote which apparently isn't necessarily 
truly attributable to Oscar Wilde or George Bernard Shaw, although it's attributed to either that socialism is a great idea, but it takes up too many evenings. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. Yeah. I, I, do, I do have some sympathy for that position. And you have a young fat, you know, you, you have a, how old is your boy? Well, my, my son is 14. I've, 14, I've right, yeah. Granddaughter who's coming up to her first birthday. So, you know, I'm getting a bit older and a bit tireder. So work in a sort of more rational way and getting more of those weekends and evenings back to spend with your family, I think is going to yeah. be incredibly uh, valuable for me. And you're obviously, as you say, you're not le- leaving the, the, the housing sector far from it. So you will, ha- you will have a, a foot, and I'm pretty sure, in still shaping how things look in the city. The real kind of big crux that, you know, and we've seen this change. I'm sat here in a, you know, I've, I've been a beneficiary of, of this really, buying our house 14 years ago in Eastern. That, you know, Bristol, I think- You gentrified it, didn't you? I, I, it was me, it was me all along. I think it's a 70% increase in the last 10 years. Is that right? Average house prices in Bristol? If not increase, more, yeah. yeah. If not more, which is about, I think, a good 40, 40, 41% the whole of England and Wales. So it's clearly way above that kind of average. I feel sorry, if I'm honest, for, you know, even professionals, younger people, just trying to get on the housing ladder. The average house price is like something like nine times higher than the average earnings in this city. How can we start to make it easier for people to get on the housing ladder? Well, firstly, thinking of housing as a ladder and a lot of people thinking of housing as an investment, I, I think those things are a problem. I think what we need to ensure is that people have got the housing that they that they require and at a price that they can afford. And I think whether you're buying or renting, the view is that you shouldn't really spend more than a third of your income after page of taxes on, yeah. on your housing. Yeah. Now, for people under the age of 40, there are very few in that position. For people over the age of 60, yeah. you know, almost all of them are in that position. There's this huge intergenerational divide in terms of where housing wealth sits. And, you know, ultimately, we've got to build a lot more social housing, council housing, so that not only does it provide not just the people on the lowest incomes and with some of the biggest problems, but generally for working class people, you know, that at the moment you have to have all sorts of reasons why you get a cancer house. It's not just good enough to be on a low income. That needs to change and it requires a lot more cancer housing than we've got now. But also if you've got a lot more cancer housing on the, the social rents, it starts to pull down the rents in the private rent sector and also I think house prices too. So an expansion of that sector would, would make a tremendous difference even to people who wouldn't end up living in it. And do people need I to do, think I differently? With rent controls, I think yeah. we should have rent controls in the private rented sector, which yeah. if we had would bring down land prices, which would also affect the cost of buying a house. I mean, because that's the other thing. I mean, you, you, there are... You know, but they're, they're twelve hundred, twelve hundred pound a month around here mm. where I am. It's it's astronomical. I'm just saying, at the moment we've got a situation where the government will control train fares, but won't control rents. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. And I also wonder whether in this country we need to. And you know, it's unfortunate and unfair. And as you say, that the older generation have kind of milked out on this compared to the younger generation. It seems fundamentally unfair. However, I wonder if we need to start thinking less about house ownership as a as a norm 
you know, like people in France and Spain and Italy, most people do rent, don't they? Yeah, home ownership has risen across the whole of Europe, though. It's it's much more everywhere. But it, it should be affordable for people. And at the moment, you know, that's the other thing with being no cap on rents, is that quite often a buy-to-let landlord can outbid a young family in buying a house. And particularly if you look at what's called the second-hand house market in places like where you live, yeah. ponds where I was until recently, a lot of that's been bought up by landlords because, you know, it's easier for them to raise the finance than somebody who wants to buy it to live in it. Yeah. And yeah. that's because there's no control on rents. So the lack of rent control is affecting people's ability, not, not just to live at a reasonable level if they're renting, but also to buy a property. One key question I had for you was what you felt could be the single most important policy change for addressing housing crisis. Have you, have you, have you, have you kind of answered that then? One is the massive council house building programme. And the second is rent control. Yeah. Yeah. And, and can you see that happening with this current government? Not at all. So when are we going to get a, a Labour government? I don't know. I mean, Labour governments are quite rare things. They don't happen very often, unfortunately, in this <laughs> yeah. country. I, I'm never quite sure why, which is probably why we've never sorted it sorted it out, because we don't really know why. I think one of the problems with Labour parties, they often fight the last election rather than the one that they're in. Yeah. And so they're always about five years behind the electorate in terms of the issues that they fight the elections on. And, and it's and it's a struggle now, I think, probably more than ever, because some of the traditional kind of Labour voters are, you know, we saw them in the last election, you know, you could debate how much that was to do with Corbyn or to do with the, the change in Brexit policy. Mm-hmm. But, but you know, there are lots of traditional, I guess, people from working class communities kind of seem to be buying this new populism line you know and it's not just here it's in the states is it you know in mainland europe it's increasing as well it seems to be gathering momentum how can the left effectively unite to counteract that and start to even start thinking about getting kind of power back i think ultimately they have to go out and work in those communities very often those communities have been neglected by the labor party the membership of the labor party is huge in the most middle class parts of Bristol and is tiny on the on the council estates. Yeah, and and it, I mean it's not something new that that drift away is has been happening since all those huge industries started closing down in the seventies and eighties. It's been pinned on some very simplistic issues of late, but if you look at the the vote count, mm-hmm. I think from two thousand and one onwards, there's been a gradual decline in, in the Labour core vote in those kind of heartlands of working class communities, hasn't there? Well, look, I mean, I also think under the sort of Blair project, it was almost like they didn't need those voters because they had the middle class. And it's often said, oh, if you go to somewhere like Hartcliffe, there's loads of people voting UKIP. But actually what you've got is loads of people not voting at all. Yeah. Because they don't think anybody's got anything to offer them. And they, they've had all the promises and nothing's changed their life. And so what you've got in a lot of those working class communities is complete disengagement from politics. So it's having those boots on the ground. I mean, there were, you know, I watched a documentary just about a few months after the last election and there were hordes of, bless them, but hordes of young students from North London being bussed up to Durham and, and Yorkshire, knocking on doors without any real kind of cultural understanding of those communities, trying to sell 
a kind of incongruent message of what the Labour Party is to to people that are really should be the bread and butter supporters of the traditional Labour Party. Yeah, it pro- probably did more harm than good. It, well, 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 quite, yeah, yeah. And generally, the right in times of difficulty has often got very effective, simplistic messages, whereas the left. You know, it's like a university dissertation. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. Clearly now you've got to look across the whole of the world and look at the type of leaders that are gaining you know, popularity in left behind communities and also how that message is put out. I talked to a mate of mine the other day, I was thinking, well, all Labour really need to do is get somebody that's already famous, has name recognition, give him, like, I don't know, three or four sound bites just to repeat over and over again, and then bring in the actual core socialist values and the kind of redistribution agenda and the kind of fairness and equality, just sort of just have that in your back pocket. So, so we had this simple message about we're going to build 800 affordable homes a year. Um yeah, it worked, didn't it? Yeah. <laughs> For me, I, I felt that the housing thing was really important because yeah. when I've been out knocking on doors, and I've been knocking on doors since 1982, you know, people would often say, yeah, the housing never goes to people like us, never goes to people around here. And, and, and that's, you know, with council housing, for instance, I've made it policy that 50% of the new homes we build have to go to people who already live in that community. Great, yeah. So that people can see not only are we building housing but people like them are benefiting from maybe them are benefiting from them that's also why we've supported very strongly the sort of community-led housing organizations in Noel West and Southmead and Lawrence Western and Lochleys because that's very much about giving those working class communities control again if you take the Southmead one is I mean, they're all really interesting and they're all different. But the, the Southmead one brought land forward to be developed, which the council would never have been allowed to touch. Yeah. But it's the community that wants to do it. It's not the council that said we're going to develop Glencoin Square. And it's those community anchor organisations like Southmead Development Trust that kind of act as that bridge, yeah, mm. to, to sort of link to the council. Yeah. Well, you want to find leaders from those communities rather than imposing them from outside. What for you, if you were to take two things away, what's been your biggest success as you leave this role? And what's been your biggest, I mean, failure is a bit dramatic, isn't it? What's been your most challenging thing? Okay, well, I think the biggest success, it has been changing that culture of that it's all terrible, we can't do anything to, yeah, actually, there's lots of things we can do, and we should be doing them. And that that change that's within the housing part of the council, I think is fundamental, and why we will be building more council housing, why we will actually be demolishing some of our tower blocks and replacing them with new homes alongside the communities. There's a whole load of things which fall into that just changing the culture from a basically we've given up to hey we can take control of this the biggest failure if you like is the inability really to make a huge difference on the number of people who are who are homeless within the city for me it's it's really disappointing in fact I'm, i'm meeting a homeless person tomorrow wants to talk to me about their experiences and i you know i do i do talk to people who either uh, in that situation or gone through it and it's it's absolutely terrifying and devastating and it's as a direct result of decisions made 
by government, you know, mainly around taking benefits away from people. And so it's not it's not an act of God. It's not something that's happened by accident. It's something that's happened almost by design. Our ability to chip into that has been very small. If anything, actually, the one positive thing that will come out of COVID is a fresh impetus around dealing with street homelessness. Yeah, sure. Um, great. Thank you, uh, Paul. My, 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 my final thing really is probably just about the the elections in May. Do you foresee more pressure coming from the Green Party or the Lib Dems? Personally, I would really like to see the Labour Party and the Green Parties becoming much closer together. I think they've got very common political agendas, but are focusing on in slightly different priorities. But I think basically that they're ethics and what they want to achieve are incredibly similar but a progressive alliance do you and sometimes the party politics and adopting the views of your tribe sometimes means you can't always see those potentials yeah yeah i would hope that at some point in the future not just in this city not just in this country but across the world we would see the left and the green movements coming much more strongly together and maybe the wider question I asked you about how do we, you know, how does the left counteract uh, the right and and the kind of rise of this almost oligarchic um, populism, uh, sort of proto-fascist Steve Bannon global project, which feel, feels like it's gathering momentum. It has to be parties on the left working together, doesn't it? It has to be. I, I, I think that, you know, that, if I mean, if you look at the last time that it seemed to be like this, which was the 30s, the left was much more interested in fighting each other than fighting yeah. fascism. Has, has that changed? I'm not sure that's changed. <laughs> no, I don't think it has. I think that's one of the things about the resurgence of the left in the Labour Party. It didn't take long before they started fighting each other. Yeah. Um, is that I mean, it's this purity at, test, isn't it, all the time? It's the kind of, how, you know, how, how authentic, how pure you are and... People should be able to work together and still disagree with each other on stuff. And as I said, none of us can all agree with each other all of the time. And, you know, we, we also have the right to change our mind on some issues. If you look at what happened in the 30s, they say if you look at the left in Spain, started shooting each other instead of shooting the fascists. Yeah. And yeah. the only thing that ended fascism in most of the world after that time was a huge six-year-long war that engulf the world and none of us want that again so the the parties of the left and the characters of the left do need to come together or they're just handing over power to the far right i think that's a nice way to end i like to end on a on a happy high point like that yeah for on on a sincere note i think people will genuinely miss you in politics and i think a lot of people in the media will actually as well because you always approach things with uh, fairness sincerity and i I personally will miss your um, dry sarcasm (laughs) yeah which hopefully has come out in this interview thank you paul okay cheers bye On next week's episode of Bristol Unpacked, we have a huge surprise guest. It will remain a secret until next time. That's because we haven't booked anybody yet, but we'll get someone good. Thanks for listening to Bristol Unpacked. I'm Neil Maggs, and a big thanks to Rosa Eaton, our audio producer, Adam Cantwell-Corn, our executive producer, and Blue Dot for our music. 
make sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes and if you want to support what we're doing join the bristol cable along with 2000 others to create a new kind of media for the city